if you focus on the 2% of your sales team who are super engaged, that can be really, really productive because they will be great ambassadors and they will keep the wine message alive. So it's about engaging with everyone. Hi, welcome to the Wine, Whiskey and Weed show. In today's episode, I have Robert and Niamh, wine category buyer for the Star Pubs and Bars, a chain of almost 3,000 pubs and bars in UK. And in this episode, we will discuss real tactics on how pubs and bars can grow their wine sales. Roberta, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sid. Thanks for having me. Super. So thanks for taking the time out. You know, I'm sure we are all working from home. So hope this is valuable for, you know, the the bartenders and the bar owners and the pub owners. And we obviously have super empathy. We all know what we're going through. So just uh, tell us a little bit about uh, yourself and about uh, the business of Star Pubs and Bars and uh, to our audience, please. Yeah, sure. So my name is Roberta Neve. I'm the wine buyer for Heineken's Entree business, which consists of star pubs and bars, as well as a broader on-trade customer base of about 10,000 accounts. Um, so I've been doing that role for about two years. Before that, I used to buy uh, New Zealand wine for Tesco. Fantastic. So I think, uh, I mean, you are sort of at the forefront, you know, you are the first one who got the biggest hit. Uh, how are you guys coping with it? And, you know, what are you doing, uh, you know, to navigate the next couple of months? Yes. Um, so, I mean, I think in terms, to use the word of the moment, it has been unprecedented for the on-trade. But I think the trick is, and this is a big thing we've been focusing on, is just to recognise the positives and the humanity in the situation. So to give an example of that, when we were in the limbo period, phase one, where it was advised for people not to go out to pubs, but it wasn't a mandate that people couldn't. I was so impressed by the entrepreneurialism that all of our pubs showed. So looking at new revenue streams, moving to takeaway, it just showed some real entrepreneurial spirit. But then obviously when we moved to phase two and the pub, it was dictated the pubs were to close, you would have thought that would be it. But actually, our pubs still found really positive means and ways to still be at the heart of the community. So whether that's donating perishable food, offering support to the elderly, or even as one of our licensees has done, she's donned her NHS uniform and she's gone back to uh, her previous career as a nurse. And stories like that are so, I think, motivating and moving. And I think it's just really important to focus on the collective effort in terms of what people are doing as opposed to focusing on the negative and actually the one thing I would say is it's really hit home how much people love the pub um you know it's such a fantastic British institution you could tell people were devastated when pubs were told they had to close so what I'm I'm hoping is that it just will we will just have the most amazing bounce back because people will just realise what a fantastic institution it is and how much they've missed it and people will want to get back into the pub. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that's where the the happy moments are done. So we're all going to escape like anything. And I think that's a good thing. We all are looking for a very positive uh, rebound here because this was a very sudden shock. So it's not like we were we were forced into this with some bad business decisions or bad uh, consumer behaviors. It was absolutely a sudden, you know, thing that happened. So I think most of the cases, uh, we just have to ride this wave like it can be weeks or it can be months. So 
that's only uh, worrisome here. Like we just don't know when this will end. So uh, let's let's uh, bring some you know optimism here, and let's just hope that in a couple of months we will be back and things will be normal, uh, and then uh, people will start focusing on growth again. And in growth comes your you know growing your food sales, growing your beverage sales. So we're going to talk more about wine here. Uh, you know, on how uh, entrepreneurs and how the pub uh, owners can focus on growing their wine sales, right? So uh, can you just uh, give us a little rundown on uh, what kind of framework are we looking here uh, from, you know, how can they start focusing on the wine category? Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. In in terms of driving wine sales in pubs, it's a really interesting one, just to give some broader context. I mean, as you would know, Sid, the UK wine market is hugely, hugely competitive. We love our very hot competitive deals. Um, and, but what has happened, I would say, over the last 10, 15 years, is that it has meant that some parts of the market have become quite highly commoditized because you do have these really competitive deals. And it's actually not all the fault of the multiple grocers. Often the grocers are blamed for driving the price of wine down and obviously that's that's not really a positive thing and my personal theory is that in a sense we've lost the sense of how to create value in wine so quite often we default to the lowest common denominator which is price but there are loads of ways that our pubs and the gen- beyond trade in general can create value in wine without just going to that lowest common denominator um, and I think some people might disagree, but I think we've got loads to learn from other categories such as spirits and beer in terms of how they've driven value and premiumization into their categories in the last five and uh, five to ten years. So to give an example of that, if you look at gin, so one of the things I love I love about my job is that I work really closely with all the other category buyers, so I get really good insight into in terms of what's happening in the gin market, what's happening in beer, as well as what's happening in wine. But if you look at gin, so who would have thought five years ago you would you could sell a gin a gin and tonic for ten pounds in the UK just by adding a really nice garnish and presenting it in a different glass? And that's now a really a universally recognized standard that's driven value into the gin category. And similarly with beer, they've taken the idea of localism, which is provenance in the wine world, and run with it to great success, actually. So don't get me wrong, we've had some really good successes in the last decade in wine. Mm-hmm. I think one of the most important challenges, which I think, you know, uh, is is when you want to think of bar or pub, you normally think of a you know like spirits or beer. Like let's just go and you know uh, spend a couple of hours or meet this person. But you you know how do you change that mindset of someone walking in with a beer uh, glass in mind and sort of you know I guess you'll have to work on your uh, you know deco or some point of sale materials. But that whole mindset, if someone's walking in for a beer, how do you convert that into a wine mindset? Yeah, I mean, great question. And there's loads, I mean, there's loads of means and ways that you can you can do that. I think, first of all, visibility of wine. So um, you would think this is a really obvious one, but and it's not a groundbreaking innovation, but wine menus, they really can't be underestimated so the importance of a well-written clear visible wine menu is 
key because we know that if people don't feel that confident, if they're a beer or spirits drinker that's gone into a pub, they might not feel that confident ordering a glass of wine. So what they'll want is something which helps them them navigate that. It helps them pronounce the wine if it's a wine which is perhaps unpronounceable. And it just makes the whole experience far less intimidating because they can just point and say, oh, number 12. So um, I think making it simple, easy to understand, visible. If it's quite a what we would call wet-led community pub and they think, they might think, oh, we don't want a formal wine menu. There's loads of other things you can do. So uh, blackboards, chalkboards. If you have all your wine merchandise, you can write in chalk the price of the bottle of wine or the glass of wine, and that makes it far more accessible. And then also another thing that you can do in a pub, as more pubs are developing their food-led offer, food and wine recommendations on the menu, and be really brave name the actual wine you have on your menu and it just holds their hand through that whole process and also it's an amazing way to boost revenue and profit as well as tie the customer's whole experience together but you're right there's a lot of competition amongst other categories so I think we have we have to simplify the offer we have to uh, make it more compelling you know you point out decoration point of sale presentation glassware is really key it's a personal bugbear i have that um glassware needs to be better um not just for uh, aesthetic reasons but also for technical reasons we all know that you know a good glass does make wine taste better so there's loads of things that can be done but as you pointed out yeah the, co- the competition is, is really strong So I think one of the difference between a restaurant is, you know, either you're upselling wine, beer or spirits and upselling a beverage or not. Right. But especially in pubs or beer, there were anyway going to drink beer or spirit. Now you've just taken that money and put it in the wine. So I'm sure the whole idea is to add revenue here, not to substitute beer sales with wine sales or vice versa. So I guess food is one of the most important uh, combo package that you can come up with. Right. Like. Uh, I'm just trying to uh, think uh, broadly here, like how can you sort of uh, take a customer into a journey of giving a beer and then uh, giving a meal with a wine? Like, are there any, is there science or uh, a nice journey or tactics that you have there? So it it really, really depends on the outlet. So if you think that, um, gosh, the percentages off the top of my head escape me, but if, if you think about wet-led pubs in the UK and dry-led pubs, Wet-led pubs, where most of their revenue comes from booze, won't be focusing so much on food. So it's not Mm -hmm. such an obvious opportunity. However, however, if you think about the clientele in pubs and how it's changing, and not to gender stereotypes about about, um, pubs and wine, but as more women go to pubs, as more pubs are... You know, doing Wi-Fi. Yeah, coffee, I was just going to. I, I was just going to say that. Absolutely, I was just going to say that. Like, uh, I guess inviting or having more women foot traffic is is going to be the core here as well. Exactly, and you've got your tried and tested deals like Fizz Friday, um, cocktail, all of that kind of thing is really helpful. Are changing, and that they're not. You know, they're not all kind of wet-led boozers with just men standing around the bar with pints and packets of crisps. 
they're really successful it, and that you know that image really does still prevail but the really successful pubs that are doing well are the ones that are diversifying that are looking at food options even if they don't have the most amazing state-of-the-art kitchen they're looking at some kind of food option just to get people to stick around for longer that have free wi-fi for home workers and gosh at times like this things like that are um well, not at times like this because obviously people can't go to pubs, but more and more people are working in that kind of way. So free Wi-Fi, good coffee, all of those things are a way of driving footfall, getting people to stand and um, stick around longer and then creating an opportunity for wine. With your food-led pubs, it's far easier because people might come in for a cocktail, aperitif, beer, and it's much easier to convert them to wine. Um, but having those food food matching options are really key and as I said on a menu because what you know one of the key issues that the entree does have is a relatively high staff turnover so one of the key bugbears that we we hear about from our pubs is that investing a lot in wine training for staff is it's sometimes hard to always yield value from it because of high staff turnover so you do have to be creative with other tools so food matches on the menu because what you're doing then is you're you know it's great to train train your staff in terms of the menu but you're also helping them out if they're they don't have a really really comprehensive wine knowledge so uh, I want to ask you uh, you know how uh, in uh, countries like Spain or Italy uh, or even Asia sometimes China Japan like they're not so fancy about putting wine in glasses I mean sometimes you will just see them using a normal spirit glass or even a small shot glasses and it's more like a tapas room or it's it's very casual so uh, the focus is just on you know the, the culture they create is almost like a bar and a pub it's not a high-end restaurant or a wine drinking culture have you guys tested those kind of things where you just you know, have uh, some pubs where the culture is loud but and the wines are just poured in normal glasses and, you know, people, in fact, it can work reverse. Like, they, they just don't want to show people that they're drinking wine. They're just drinking. Yeah, it's, it's, a great, it's a great concept, which I have seen a lot in the on-trade. You know, you've got that, um, you've got Polpo in London, which I think was one to serve wine, wine in tumblers. Uh, we work with a we've worked with a supplier on a launch of a new load of wine glasses, which are exactly that tumblers, which are coloured, and um, as you say, gives it more of an informality, which could be a way of extending the reach of wine. That can be quite divisive though, because you also do have a very traditional wine customer who wants a, a stem, and there are technical reasons why drinking a white wine in a stem glass is is better but don't get me wrong i'm all for innovation like that but i think it's just about choosing the right the right outlet but experiment you know there's there is no harm in experimentation and if we think i mentioned the gin example earlier and now how it's the universal standard that gin is served in a copper you know that has completely transformed how people view the gin category similarly with apple spritz so that's a very recognizable serve now in you know in a big wine glass bright orange, really nice garnish. So um, there's definitely something on presentation, which I think the wine category could do more of in the on-trade. To, to give a, a great example, which I learned about from one of our operators recently, which I just thought was a, you know, really entrepreneurial, 
he said that for any bottle of wine that he sells on his list that's above £20, he will serve it in a decanter. And and then the customer will take it back to their table. And what it does is it creates that kind of, I suppose, that PIMS effect in that people see something and they think, oh, I want that. I want what they've got. What yeah, it's got? like taking the champagne out in a nightclub. Exactly, exactly that. And I think things like that that add theatre are are really, really important. Um, it's why popping a, why Prosecco has been such a fantastic success because it's created affordable theatre everyone wants to be able to pop a cork and being able to pop a cork at Prosecco prices is is more accessible than perhaps popping a cork at champagne prices <laughs> true so let's uh, show them some point of sale materials that you've seen uh, works you know that you can put uh, inside the restaurants on the tables you know if you can walk us through some specifics and examples of some point of sale materials please yeah, sure. Um, so we mentioned menus. Um, should have a menu on the table, a, a blackboard, a mini blackboard with a specific food or wine matching recommendation is is really key. Um, a new bit of innovation that we will be trialling, and I'm, I've seen it in other markets which have been successful, is a uh, our, our essentially. Uh, biofuel candles i'm not sure if you've heard of them it's a brand called light me and essentially it's a really great way for a brand a wine brand to represent itself on the table and what's fantastic about that is that it's it's sturdy it looks more premium whereas paper pos um it's relatively common in pubs but the issue you've got is that it's not sturdy it, it doesn't last and actually we are thinking more and more about the environmental impact of, of paper POS. But something like the, the great thing about something like a, a biofuel candle is that you've got the brand representation on, you can have a snippet about about the wine itself, but that bit of POS is also serving another purpose and that it's a candle um, and it's you know, creating nice lighting. So I think for me, the rule of thumb with POS is great if it can have another function as well but then the general rule of thumb is try and keep it I think less cluttered on the table um, because otherwise people don't really know where to start. Mm -hmm. So I've seen like neon lights you know like Heineken, Budweiser's and uh, you know Jack Daniels and all those kind of things that we put. Uh, Are you guys playing with uh, the wine uh, lights or big branding like posters? Do you do do that or it's, it's just not there yet? Um, there's obviously, I mean, in terms of um, traditional POS, like if people want to create a champagne area with uh, Grand Mark umbrellas, that's something which is quite popular, which you do see more and more. I think that the issue you have with wine POS in the on-trade is that wine brands in the on-trade in the UK are not such a thing as you would, it's it's so much more fragmented a market. So the brands you have in the on-trade are normally the varietal or the country of origin. So, Got it. So it's not like someone's so, coming in and um, saying, give me Bacardi or uh, give me Yellowtail. Yeah, exactly. It's just not so common. And actually, the thing that we find from customers is that people don't really want some some customers will happily sell off-trade brands. A lot of the time, people don't want them because they feel very 
uncomfortable about charging an on-trade margin, so 60 or 70%, for what they perceive to be an off-trade brand, that that is a really, really big concern for people. So in, it, it that does limit how much POS we can create. But what we do try to support with is what, you know, what people want. So ice buckets, um, glassware, albeit unbranded for the most part, but we'll just give advice about the best kind of glassware for the wine that they want to that people want to serve but also I go I go back to it again menus are just hugely important a well-written visible menu agree so I think one of the uh, key uh, duties in your role is premiumization right I've been reading about you a little bit interviews here and there so I think uh, if you can share uh, on premiumization uh, you know how do you do your buying? Like, let, let's go on ven- wine menu planning. You know, what's your ideal wine menu? Oh, yes, ideal wine menu. Um, so it's got to have clear, clear tiering, key varietals, but also in this day and age, you do need more exploratory wine. So um, it's that balance, isn't it, between classic and exploratory. And also what's you know, what's good value for money? As we all know, some some years, traditional classic wines are just not as good value for money as something more um, more esoteric. Uh, another thing which I think is really, really important and I've been quite vocal about before is, is serving by the glass. So serving by the glass is a really great way to drive trial because people do see wine as a high risk purchase but and this is such a big but only do it if you can guarantee the throughput and the freshness so the worst outcome would be and unfortunately and I'm sure you will have had this as well I've had this many a time is that people will offer loads of wines by the glass but none of them are at their optimum because the throughput hasn't been monitored so there are really simple ways to mitigate that wine preservation systems or just note on the back label when the when the wine has been opened and if in doubt just chuck it because the cost of the bottle is just not worth giving a customer a poor experience and driving them out of the category because i can bet you next time they're not coming back for wine they're coming back for gin and tonic so i think the key is with premiumization is people can talk about um, products but actually it's how you serve the wine the whole experience end to end which can also drive premiumization and then drive that that second serve now have you seen uh you know uh, wine sales helping increase food sales yes so um well they, they work very closely in tandem together i would say it's more probably the other way around actually so food sales will drive wine sales because what tends to happen is on a food menu, a, a wine is recommended as opposed to on a wine menu, of a food item is recommended. Mm-hmm. Super. So I think uh, uh, when we look at, you know, staff training, I mean, I absolutely agree that the staff turnover is one of the biggest challenges in, you know, pubs and bars. Uh, what sort of basic wine training do you guys cover? So, I mean, I think with training, you can you can never do enough training. So there are two elements to this for us. So we have training for our our frontline sales team, so our business development managers who are out 
you know, every day talking to, to our pubs. And then you've got training for the our um, our staff in pubs in both our manager state and our Lucenton to the state. So in an ideal world, what I would love to do is take all of our frontline sales team off the road for WSCP courses, but it's about being realistic because, you know, not everyone, people don't have the time for that. And I think just to reference Eric Guerra, who in one of your, your earlier shows mentioned the 2%. So if you focus on the 2% of your sales team who are super engaged, that can be really, really productive because they will be great ambassadors and they will keep the wine message alive. So it's about engaging with everyone, but focusing on on those who are super engaged. Um, but in terms of what's in my gift to do and what we actively do once a year, we have a, what we call a wine call cycle where we do solid wine capability with our business development managers and they focus on driving wine sales to two months solid so last year we did this we taught we tasted we did some tailored wfct content and the engagement was amazing face to face and tasting it's so key it's i can't emphasize that enough because if you think about it us working in the trade we definitely take for granted the whole process of wine tasting whereas to people who so you mean suppliers coming and doing a little pop-up and doing yeah. a store, uh, like a like an in-store tasting basically absolutely well so either i would just so i do lots of tastings um my business development managers will do lots of tastings with their pubs but also suppliers will come in and do that and that is just you know for me that is one of the most important things because particularly in the on trade which is not branded people need to taste to be able to trust the wine and you know you forget it it's super fun wine tasting people love wine tasting and we definitely take that for granted in the trade and it just adds that whole kind you know it makes customers feel a bit more loved so to give an example last year one of our Chilean winemakers went and did a one-on-one tasting of one of our um with one of our accounts and actually you can't put a price on that that's just a brilliant experience so you know, training, the academic stuff, fine, but just the actual act of tasting wine with people is is the best way to learn. Super, super. So I think, uh, I mean, not all the pubs and bars have the privilege of, you know, mining the data and head office and budgets and all that sort of thing. You guys do a lot of uh, data mining as well, but for the small operators you know how can they sense the consumer trends and you know make their purchasing better like are there any tips uh on uh, you know they can see where the trends are going or they can read their consumers better yeah i mean there are loads of sources i think we are really lucky in that our industry in our industry we have lots of fantastic publications and content out there so um the first thing I should say is that your supplier, your wine supplier, I us or whoever you choose to use, should be feeding you with data, insight, vintage reports, all of that kind of thing. And if they're not, you know, you need publications and really brilliant content, which I access all the time. So you've got Harper's, you've got the drinks business, you've got all sorts of uh, available content like that. But also just learning from other people. So something that I do and which, you know, like our BDMs do and, and, and pubs, perhaps it's 
more difficult to find the time but would get so much benefit from is getting out on the road and seeing what other people are doing so heineken and, and star pubs and bars are massive supporters of this get out and trade go and speak to pubs go and understand what other people are doing because that's when you get really grassroots insight so to give an example people talk about no and low alcohol wine and no and low alcohol no and low alcohol uh, the category being the next big thing, which is all very well, and we've all seen the data, but it really came alive for me when I, I got out and trade and understood that there is there's a high number of our pubs that do baby showers and they want zero percent alcohol, sparkling wine, exactly. So you can you know you can read all the reports in the world, but insight like that. Yeah, I was watching that uh, in January. It was like big time no alcohol month. Yes, it, I mean it's massive absolutely massive so dry january in the uk every year it has more and more participants it's you know part of a, a broader wellness culture um so we and wine as a category really have to step up to that because you know arguably we are behind the spirits and beer guys but it's something that people want it's really you know it, it's an active trend um so but to answer your question yeah there's so many publications but also look to your suppliers if they're not that giving you that data they should be and, and you should be asking for it true true so as a as a you know supplier uh just a little uh off track here uh and i want to add some value for the winemakers and the suppliers as well like what are the core things that you look for when you add a new brand to your you know like a big purchase or when you're adding a new skew like you know why would you select a supplier over another supplier um so if i in terms of the actual range, um, because I mean, most suppliers I ask will have their core range, so it, it would have to be because the like-for-like like product, there was a, a massive improvement in terms of quality versus cost or a more efficient supply chain. So, um, you know, buyers, we're annoying. We are pretty specific about our our needs. So, um in terms of taking on new product development for NPD, it would have to be a, a concept which is showing real traction in the trade. So in, in the off-trade, for instance, so um, if I look at what Malbec, Argentinian Malbec is doing in the off-trade, we, in the on-trade, we're still far behind that number. So we, you know, perhaps would look to take on more Malbecs or um, replace a like-for-like product in terms of what i would look for in a supplier it would be obviously quality is non-negotiable and i'm i'm really can't emphasize this enough in the on-trade people don't want to go out to the on-trade and have a bad wine experience you're paying a lot of money for it um people do people are more and more discerning about quality um so that is that's really really key flexibility in the on-trade because it's not such a and this is really key and this is a massive learning for me coming from the off-trade where you're used to just buying you know monumental volumes you can be absolutely sure of the free per and and you don't you don't really need much flexibility because you're just ordering in such in such massive volumes in the on-trade you definitely need more flexibility because if you're launching a new concept or a new product or a new range it's not like you can put it on a shelf and it will just sell. You know, you have to build 
trust in the brand. You have to get people on board. So I would say definite flexibility from a from a supplier. But also, I mentioned the, the softer stuff earlier. So, you know, coming over doing tastings, that kind of stuff is so valuable. People really want to put a face to the wine they want to understand the story so a willing a willingness to engage in that kind of more convivial sociable side in of the on trade is really um is really important great great i mean if i i was a supplier and i was just listening to this conversation you know i exactly know what i would do to get your interest i would create a non-alcoholic malbec give you some data that this is a mover i would commit you you know buy only one case for each pub i will do a store taste i will do a tasting in each pub this friday and give me a chance exactly <laughs> that's I just it. Laid it all out there there we go it's not such a tall order is it Super. So I think um, just to uh, end this, uh, Roberta, uh, have you got any, you know, I would let, let's just inspire our community here. You know, uh, what's your thoughts on uh, navigating a couple of months? And then after that, you know, uh, hopefully things get better. So my thoughts in the interim is keep in touch with people. So um, we as a business are keeping in touch um actively with our our pubs because um well for many reasons really we should all be trying to keep in touch with each other just in terms of our our mental health but it's really important to do that and to make sure that people are aware of what support is available to them so in the uk there's a there's government support which has come forward which is relatively helpful so um, that's a tip that I would give trying to, you know, the practical things like clearing down stock, decommissioning equipment properly so that you can start up properly. Um, but also just having every faith in the bounce back. And I'm sure it will be huge. And I think just taking confidence in the fact that speaking about the UK in particular, we do have the most amazing on-trade industry. and customers i think having had you know, one two three months of not being able to experience that will be back and forth and i think there'll be a newfound reverence and respect for what is an amazing hospitality industry in the uk and i think we should all take comfort from that yep i think for sure exactly i was thinking that that the relationship between the consumer and the on-premise is going to be even stronger more you know people will have deeper feelings and i think we will just uh have a strong rebound. So um, I really appreciate uh, your time, Roberta. Your attitude towards this was amazing. I mean, you guys were are the, one of the most hit businesses and keeping the positive attitude is, is the way to go, I think. We just don't have any other option. Mm-hmm.